text this evening is uh, John chapter 4. If you please turn with me to John chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Her fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not we you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Spirit, the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. John's gospel sets forth Jesus as the great fulfiller of the Old Testament. And what we find is not only Jesus interacting with one after another of the various parts and aspects of the Old Covenant, but he also reveals himself in ever-widening circles in line with the New Testament expansion of the gospel to all nations. For as John has told us back in chapter 117, the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John sets forth Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament ceremonies of purification and atonement. Recall how John the Baptist announced Jesus to be the Lamb of God two different times. 
The wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus set aside the Jewish laws of purification when he turned into wine, that water that had been set aside for purification, indicating that those ceremonies were no longer needed now that he has come to cleanse his people from their sin. At the same time, the sign of turning water into wine took place at a wedding, which indirectly supports, um, it shows Jesus was supporting the institution of marriage, which already in the Old Testament was set forth to God's people as a picture of God's relationship with his people, his bride. And wine spoke of celebration and prosperity under the goodness of God. And so for Jesus to turn water into wine at a wedding celebration as his first miraculous sign points to Jesus as the source of our fellowship with God and really of all spiritual blessings. Along the same lines, Jesus cleansed the temple in a way that asserted his authority over it and pointed to the greater temple of his body. Jesus taught that the temple in Jerusalem really pointed to his body, which though it would be destroyed, would be raised. And this is based on the understanding that the temple, as a meeting place with God's people through atonement and cleansing, was fulfilled in Jesus. The physical temple would be destroyed, never to be raised up again, but it would be the death and resurrection of Jesus' body That would bring about the reality of the temple, which is God dwelling with his people in friendship and fellowship for all eternity. And then Jesus met with Nicodemus, who represented all three of the main branches of Jewish religious leadership. And Jesus rebuked Nicodemus for not understanding the need for sinners to be spiritually changed in order to see and enter the kingdom of God. At the same time, Jesus boldly proclaimed that he had knowledge of heavenly things that only someone coming from heaven could know. As a Pharisee focused on external matters of religion, Nicodemus needed to have Jesus explain to him the spiritual significance of Moses lifting up that serpent in the wilderness, explaining that that was a type of the Son of Man being lifted up, the need for those who would have eternal life to believe in him. Jesus explained God's plan of salvation from eternity as rooted in such a strong love of God for a sinful world that he gave his only son in order to save whoever believes in him. Salvation through faith flowing out of a new spiritual birth was something new for Nicodemus. Even John the Baptist understood that the baptisms that characterized his ministry pointed to Jesus. His testimony was that it was Jesus who has the spirit without measure. It's through faith in him that sinners are delivered from God's wrath and have eternal life. While Jesus did not perform miracles or perform baptisms himself, as he was the reality to which they pointed. Jesus is also the fulfiller of the Old Testament as a covenant of God with the Jewish people as he inaugurated the new covenant which is for all nations. The Old Testament church consisted of a few Gentiles, yes, but basically the Old Testament was about Jewish salvation. It was a time of preparation for the coming Messiah, and with the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, a king had come who would now conquer the nations. The covenant of God is now for the world. And this fits with John's account of Jesus revealing himself to ever-widening circles. He's a witness to John the Baptist. 
and then to his immediate disciples directly, and then as well through, through the sign that they witnessed at the wedding at Cana. He was revealing himself to the people in Jerusalem at the temple, and also to Nicodemus, and then to Judea through John the Baptist, who testifies to Jesus' greatness, and now to Samaria, as he converses with a Samaritan woman and ends up ministering to the people of Sychar. We see these themes that keep surfacing in the Gospel of John. There's the theme of cleansing that comes with John the Baptist baptizing, the water jars of purification, the cleansing of the temple, the need for spiritual cleansing of the heart in the new birth. There's a focus on life and light. In the word is life, and the life is the light of men. The true light was coming into the world. And those who believe in the Son of Man will have eternal life. Jesus was given by a loving God so that sinners might have eternal life. And all along there is water, the water of baptism, the water turned into wine, the need to be born of water and the spirit, and now the water of Jacob's well, and a discussion of the living water that Jesus gives. In all of this, Jesus is crossing a number of boundaries, the boundary between the Old and New Testaments, the boundary between races as the gospel goes to all nations, the boundaries of culture. And under this theme of Jesus crossing boundaries, we will consider, first of all, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. Second, Jesus going beyond the physical realm. Third, Jesus bringing the gospel to a Gentile. And fourth, Jesus negating the boundary that said that the only acceptable place of worship was at the temple in Jerusalem. So chapter 4 opens with Jesus crossing the literal physical boundary of Judea into Galilee, where he then crosses the boundaries of culture in talking with a Samaritan woman. Last time we read about John the Baptist's disciples disputing with a Jew over purification. Though we are not told the details of that debate, it's evident that there was some resistance to John's baptism, which was coming from the Jews. And now we learn that the Pharisees are involved. And knowing that they did not approve of John the Baptist's ministry, it was only going to be worse for Jesus, as the Pharisees are hearing now about Jesus making and baptizing more disciples than John. Jesus was always aware of the purpose of his coming, which was to die for sinners. And he knew that things needed to happen at the right time. And in order to avoid the scrutiny and antagonism of the Pharisees at this early juncture in his ministry, He crosses the border of Judea, and he heads back toward Galilee. And it's on this route, while on this route, that he enters into the region of Samaria. Now, Samaria was originally the name given to the capital city of the northern kingdom of the ten tribes, but it came also to be the name for that northern region there in Israel. The people who lived in Samaria after the Assyrian captivity were called Samaritans, and it was with a Samaritan woman that Jesus ended up talking. To understand this history, we really need to understand something of past history. We need to understand who the Samaritans were. We need to understand why it was considered taboo for Jesus to have interacted with this woman the way that he did. So basically, the Samaritans were a mixed-race people of Jews and Gentiles. 
When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Samaria, not every single Jew was taken captive. In fact, some, mostly the poor of the land, were left behind. But in order that they might not repopulate and not gain power, the Assyrians imported foreigners from Babylon and the surrounding areas to settle there in Samaria. And what was developed among these this mixed-raced people was a syncretistic religion, meaning a religion that is, that is a mixture of several religions. The Jews that remained had already turned away from a pure worship of Jehovah. Remember how they in the north had been worshiping Jehovah through the golden calves, through these idols. And they had their own places of worship there in Dan and Bethel, separate from the worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And these foreigners who were imported into Samaria, of course, did not know the God and religion of the Jews, but they soon figured that it was best to appease the God of that region. And so they were open to accepting the main parts of the religion of the Jewish remnant. And so these Jews and these foreigners ended up intermarrying, and they ended up building their own temple at the base of Mount Gerizim, a temple equipped with their own altar, and all under the direction of an Israelite priest sent by the king of Assyria. Now there was also worship of the foreign gods that was continued side by side with what basically looked like the old religion of the Jews. And so there was this religion that bore many of the outward marks of the religion of the Jews, but was not really the same thing. Um, 2 Kings 17 Verse 33 summarizes the attitude of the Samaritans where it says, So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. When Judean southern Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity and began working on rebuilding the temple at Jerusalem, Samaritans opposed that work. At first, they offered to help the returning Jews under the guise that they all worshipped the same God, Jehovah. But when the offer was rejected, the Samaritans took offense and opposed the rebuilding of the temple. And this is not a surprising response when we consider the long-living bitterness of the northerners over not being accepted as a legitimate people and legitimate religion by the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And the bitterness associated with the debate over where God's sanctuary was supposed to be located went way back. Now, there was a general consensus among all Israelites, northern and southern, that God was to be worshipped where he ordained. And they could agree on that. The Israelites coming from Egypt were given instruction by Moses that once they had crossed the Jordan to begin conquering the land of Canaan, They were to set up an altar on Mount Ebal across from Mount Gerizim, and they were to perform a covenantal ceremony of remembrance. So Mount Gerizim Gerizim and Mount Ebal, they are in the vicinity of the city of Shechem, later called Sychar, which we notice in our text. This is the city near where Jesus met with the Samaritan woman. Essentially, this city was located in this valley between the two mountains, of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And Moses instructed the people of God that after they enter the land of Canaan, they are to assemble on these two mountains across from each other, and a ceremony was to be conducted to remind them 
of the importance of following God's covenant commandments. And so six tribes were to assemble on the slopes of Gerizim, and when the covenant blessings were read out loud, they were to shout amen. And the other six tribes were to assemble across the way on Mount Ebal, and when the covenant curses were read, they were to shout amen. And the commandments were to be written on stones. A monument was to be erected out of those stones. They were instructed to build an altar out of uncut stones. And they were on that altar to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. They were to eat there and they were to rejoice before the Lord. In this way, the people were to be reminded that there were blessings in the way of obedience, curses in the way of disobedience. And Joshua chapter 8 tells us that this ceremony was carried out under Joshua's leadership soon after the conquering of the land had begun. So this area of Mount Gerizim and Shechem, Sychar, has been actually the location of other historical events of religious significance. In Genesis chapter 12, we read there that Abram was passing through Shechem. And there the Lord appeared to him and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. In Genesis chapter 33, Jacob camped before Shechem, and he ended up buying the land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, meaning God, the God of Israel. Later, near the time of his death, Jacob bequeathed Shechem to his son Joseph, explaining that he had taken it from the hand of the Amorites with his sword and bow. Now, we don't know when that took place. The scripture is otherwise silent about this conquest. But notice we are not told that Jacob bought originally the entire city of Shechem, but only a portion of land from Shechem's father, Hamor, in the vicinity of the city. But then if you recall the history, Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, attacked the city, killed Hamor and his son Shechem to avenge the rape of their sister Dinah. Jacob then left the area, but at some point the Amorites must have tried to move in on the area of Shechem, and apparently Jacob took up arms to keep it. He probably reasoned that even though his sons took Shechem in an ungodly way, the land was up for grabs and could be claimed even as recompense for what was, had been done to his daughter, and so he claimed possession. And his reference at the time of his death to having taken this land with his sword and bow and his rebuke to Simeon, to Simeon and Levi indicate that he remained irritated even years later with what had happened. He was not going to give Simeon and Levi or any of, uh, of their brothers the satisfaction of owning that land, and so he gave it to Joseph. And that Jesus now is near Shechem at a well called Jacob's Well. fits the scenario that this was the land that belonged to Jacob, in part by purchase and part by taking it from the Amorites with his sword and bow. We would expect Jacob to dig a well on his land as a way to provide water for his family and flocks. And when Joseph, looking back now in history to when he was a young man, remember the time he was sent by his father to check on his brothers who were taking care of the flocks, and Scripture says they were near Shechem. It's reasonable to assume that the well there was used to water these flocks. Later, when Joseph is a ruler in Egypt and is facing his own death, he anticipates God bringing him and his relatives back to the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised 
to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as an act of faith, he asked that his bones be carried back to Canaan. And at the time of the Exodus, around 400 years later, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, in keeping with the vow made to Joseph. Later, Joshua was facing his death after having led God's people in the conquest of Canaan. He gathered all of the tribes of Israel together. Guess where they gathered? They gathered at Shechem. And there he reminded them of what God had done in delivering them from Egypt and called them to covenant faithfulness. He wrote down their covenant commitments and then took a large stone and set it up as a witness to all that they had said. And we were told that we are told that this stone was set up under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And so Shechem was even the resting place for the tabernacle for a while. And it was there that at Shechem that Joseph's bones were buried. Scripture says, in the place of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. So knowing this history provides a context that gives significance to Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well near the city of Sychar, near the city of what was at one point Shechem, in the shadow of Mount Gerizim. It's also an understanding of how the Samaritans regarded this land that helps us to understand the division between the Jews and Samaritans, again providing a context for the significance of what Jesus is doing. See, the, the, the Samaritans believed that Shechem, and specifically Mount Gerizim, was the holiest place in all of the land. The only place, they argued, that God ordained to be worshipped. And in part, this view is understandable. So we think of how an altar was built there by Abram and then Jacob. How Jacob bought land there and at some point conquered the area and dug a well. As the people were poised to cross the Jordan and take their promised inheritance, Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 28 that an altar be built there at Mount Ebal overlooking Shechem. Joseph's bones were buried at Shechem. God's sanctuary rested for some time at Shechem. And so when the question was raised where God was to be worshipped, the Samaritans insisted God had ordained Shechem as the place. And they built a temple on Mount Gerizim and they offered sacrifices there, insisting that the temple at Jerusalem was a violation of God's law. Now we might wonder why the temple wasn't built on Mount Ebal, because that was the mountain on which Moses commanded an altar to be built, and where Joshua ended up building an altar. But the Samaritans insisted that Mount Ebal was a mistake in the text of Scripture and that Moses and Joshua both had Mount Gerizim in mind and that the altar was actually built there. Now we believe they were wrong about that. And another error in their thinking is that Mount Gerizim is the mountain on which Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. Um, we know that Mount Moriah, which is what scripture says is the place where that took place, um, that ends up being the location for the temple in Jerusalem. But the Samaritans say that text actually refers not to Moriah, but to Moreh, and that Moreh is a region associated with Mount Gerizim and Shechem. And so the Samaritans insisted that Mount Gerizim is the place that God ordained for his worship. Meanwhile, the Jews insisted that, yes, the tabernacle was there for a time, there at Shechem, but eventually it was moved with God's authorization to Shiloh, 
then to Kiriath-Jerim, to Gibeon, where it was in the house of Obed-Edom, and eventually to Jerusalem, where the temple was built, all under God's direction. Yes, an altar was built by the patriarchs there at Shechem, but we also know there was uh, an altar built at Bethel. And so the idea that there was only one place to worship God and that the Samaritans had figured it out is blatantly false, though we can grasp the line of their argumentation. Well, this context provides the, this information provides the context for understanding how the Jews and the Samaritans argued vehemently over who were the true worshipers of God. And so intense was this dispute that the Jews deliberately destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim around 100 years before Jesus was born. And you can gather that that did not improve their relationship. And so consequently, it is a statement loaded with great significance when we read that Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And the suspense builds even further when we read that a woman from Samaria came to draw water and that Jesus spoke to her. And his first words to her are, give me a drink. That may sound demanding, it may sound even rude, but the woman was not offended. Basically, Jesus was asking her for a drink. And so some English translations to, to, to try to convey what they believe is the proper tone here, they insert the word please in order to capture what is believed to be a casual tone of request. Um, the word please is not actually found in the Greek, but the very same word give is found in the Lord's Prayer when we say, as we pray to the Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Certainly we're not commanding God to give us bread. We're not uh, commanding him as though we deserve it. It's, it's not that we're telling God what to do, right? When we say give us this day our daily bread, we are requesting bread. And uh, that she has a water jar that she will later set down indicates that she had already drawn some water and Jesus is simply asking her for a drink. And rather than being offended by a Jewish man telling her what to do, she's actually surprised and even shocked. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. See, for Jesus to ask for a drink from a Samaritan and a woman on top of that, was to cross cultural boundaries. But more on that next time. Jesus will end up engaging her in conversation that involves the water from the well. But more than that, Jesus will push her to think about spiritual matters. He will speak to her of living water that he is able to give. And he's talking there about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the spiritual blessings that he gives that involve the heart and that issue forth into eternal life. But this woman, in a way very similar to Nicodemus, doesn't seem to be able to see beyond the physical realm as Jesus crosses into the realm of the spiritual. And in order to push this Gentile woman toward salvation, Jesus points out the sin in her life. He does it gently while also not beating around the bush. And he makes it clear to her that he is all-knowing, that none of her secret sins is hidden. It's at this point that her Samaritan religious leanings come forward. She recognizes Jesus to be a prophet, but is aware of the divide between their two religions. And she points to the old controversy between their people about whether worship is to be on Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. And I suggest that she's confused 
why Jesus would speak to her of the possibility of eternal life. Isn't he a Jew? Don't Jews insist that all worshipers who reject the worship of Jerusalem are outside of the possibility of salvation? And what Jesus points out is at the very heart of the gospel and what Nicodemus and this woman and all people need to understand, which is that the place of worship is not the important thing. Now, in a sense, it had been in the Old Testament era. God had specifically told the people that they were to worship at the place he ordained, and that undoubtedly became the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus boldly tells the Samaritan woman, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And he had just told her, you worship what you do not know. In other words, yes, you worship Jehovah, that is, you think you do, you claim you do, but in reality, you do not know him. And so we see that Jesus is not in any way minimizing or avoiding the claim that it was the Jews who had the true religion. Of course, not even close to all of the Jews were truly saved. Even many, if not most, of the Jewish religious leaders like Nicodemus didn't have spiritual understanding. They did not have the life that comes only by means of the new birth of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, the temple at Jerusalem was where, by God's appointment, the temple sacrifices and ceremonies were conducted, and they pointed to the work of the coming Messiah who would come from Judah and not from a tribe of the north. Jesus wants the Samaritan woman to know that in the end, what is important is not the location of worship. What is important is the object of worship. Yes, the location of worship in the Old Testament was joined to the worship of the one true God. The location, yes, in the Old Testament was important. If you wanted to worship Jehovah and you were looking to the coming of his Messiah, you could not ignore the temple in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, Jesus explains the hour is coming when the location will no longer matter. The old debate about Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion in Jerusalem will be irrelevant Because worship has always been about God's provision for sin, his grace in the Messiah. And once the Messiah has come and the temple ceremonies are all fulfilled, the attention of worship is no longer going to be directed to the temple, but only to the person of the Messiah. So in the end, Jesus points to the necessity of worship that is in spirit and truth. Next time we'll get into the meaning of of this in a more in-depth way, but for now I would point out the basic meaning of these terms. Worship that is in spirit is worship that is not restricted to only the physical realm. True worship is not about a place. It's not about external ceremonies, though in the Old Testament it did include external physical things. But true worship has always been a matter of the heart and therefore only possible through a spiritual work in the heart by the Holy Spirit. True worship is about loving God. It's about desiring to honor him. It's about the desire to praise him and to thank him for the work of his Messiah. And that this worship is to be in truth means that it is to be worship grounded in the truth of God's word. God is spirit and thus invisible. And so the only way that we are going to worship him properly is to know who he is and what he has done. And that can only happen through a revelation of himself. 
the heart of God's revelation of himself, of course, is Jesus Christ, the Word. Thus, any true worship of God is going to involve a knowledge of Jesus Christ as our Savior from sin. So true worship is not even possible without the truth of God as we find it in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the love of God for us as sinners, the love of God for us in Christ. It's, and it's knowing the hope of eternal life through faith in him, knowing this reality in our lives and being thankful for this. That is at the heart of true worship. And so once Jesus came and died and rose again in fulfillment of God's salvation promises, there's no need for a temple at Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim or anywhere. What God wants are people who love him and thank him and praise him for the love that he has shown us in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the fact that now that he has come, we can worship him wherever we are, and worship is no longer restricted to a certain location, um, a certain place where ceremonies are conducted as it was there at the temple in the Old Testament era. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we, we know, Father, that the object of our faith and at the very heart of our worship is our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Um, we thank you and we praise you for what he has done, for what he has accomplished, for this living water that he gives us that is a symbol for us of eternal life. Lord, uh, we thank you for not giving us what we deserve, but giving us this life in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.